I'm Kate Daniels. We, all of us who live in the United States, are in crisis and so at a place where we need to put aside our perceived differences and see how we truly are alike. We are all human beings, humans becoming. Jason Greer is a race relations expert and diversity consultant and is the president of Greer Consulting. He's lived through some horrific experiences and he could be hateful. But as we'll discover in meeting Jason now, we have choices to make and a world that needs us to find common ground. Jason Greer, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. And I as well. Uh, You came to my awareness, Jason, as someone who is a race relations expert and diversity consultant. And during these really trying, troubling times that we're experiencing in our country right now, we've had challenging times. But right now we seem to be in just a real stressful time, something that's like almost a boiling pot going to overboil. And so it feels like it's we really need to have some kind of a conversation. So I, I'm so happy that you're here, that we can do that. We can approach this. Hey, thank you. Thank you. I completely agree with you. I mean, it's, you know, I've been around 10 situations. I was a victim of cross burnings when I was 17. And so this is back in 1991 um, when the Ku Klux Klan burned crosses in protest of my family. And you know, so I've been, as well as a variety of other things that have happened in the course of my life, so I've been through tense situations, but I don't remember, in my con- I don't have a conscious memory of a time in which things were this tense. It's almost so tense you can, you can touch it and reach out and grab it. Scary. Yes, that's what it's begun to feel like. And so for you to say that when you've been through something as... I, I can't even imagine something as serious as the Ku Klux Klan and cross burnings. You've been there, and yet this seems to be even more intense for you? Yes, it's more intense because there are more variables. You know, when I think technology has been both a blessing and a curse, it's a blessing because it gives you greater access to the world, it gives you greater access to people. Um, it's a curse because it gives you greater access to people, right? Yeah. So uh, I'm amazed at the level of vitriol that's being expressed in social media. Um, I am amazed at, you know, we had the death of Mr. Sterling uh, last week, the death of Mr. Castile the following day, and the death of five police officers. Uh, I don't even know if it was the following day. I think it was that evening. I'm not quite sure, but nevertheless, these events happen, and then you can almost see the country. We, I've always thought we lived in a polarized country, but I was not as aware of it until these past couple of days. Because now it's you have the side of the community that is staunchly, staunchly in support of, of the police officers. You have the other side of the street where people are staunchly in support of the gentlemen who were killed. And there's no wiggle room. It's not like anybody's meeting in the middle to say, it's possible to mourn the death of Mr. Sterling and Mr. Castile while also mourning the death of the police officers. It's called being human, right? Yes. It just doesn't seem like we're having that human dialogue. So that is what you, in your professional role as a diversity consultant, would see that we're not responding in a compassionate, humanistic, or human form 
to the fact that these are all human beings. We're all the same. Maybe we have a, you know, a different level of tan on our skins, but uh, we're all human beings. We are all human beings, but we're, we're complicated human beings. And, you know, it's interesting that you uh, identify me as a a race relations expert because that's what I'm built at. And for years, I took pride in feeling like I was offering solutions. And then suddenly the past couple of days have happened and people are asking me, what do we do next? And I'm like, I just don't know (laughs) because we, we live in a more civilized time, yet we're not, we're, we're not necessarily providing more civilized actions. Uh, but I was meeting with a group yesterday and had a big 200 person room and we're, you know, this free flowing dialogue. It was an amazing thing, but I noticed how there were still these divisions. So what I did was I grabbed a flip chart, pulled out a marker and I wrote black lives matter. One category, another category I wrote, we who love the police officers, right? And people are looking at me like, okay, what are you doing? And then I drew with my very, you know, I'm not a, an artist. I drew seven caskets, one for Mr. Sterling, one for Mr. Castile, and then for the five police officers. And I said, Black Lives Matter is over here arguing that uh, the deaths of uh, the two African-American men, in addition to all the other African-American men that died at the hands of police officers, is the fault of the police. The police is arguing that the five gentlemen who were killed, it's Black Lives Matter's fault. Oh, but no one's considering that there are seven bodies here, seven deaths. These were fathers. These were sons. These were husbands. These were friends who are never coming back. We've gotten so locked into proving that we're right that we're forgetting just what you just said, that we are human beings and we need to figure out a better way of, doing, of having this dialogue. So there is the question part of the crux of it. We need to have the dialogue, but yet there is that polarization uh, of of wanting to say, but but I'm right. I've had this loss. How do we bridge this? Uh, Great question. We acknowledge that we're all right. Uh, Sincerely. Uh, When someone stands up and says Black Lives Matter, I say right. And I don't counter with all lives matter because that's, that's a bogus... You know, that, that's a bogus argument. The bogus argument, if my fixation is on the fact that African-American men are dying at an alarming rate at the hands of police officers, I have the right to say that. I have the right to believe that. If I want to stand on the other side and say all lives matter, I have the right to say that, and I completely agree. If I want to stand over here and say blue lives matter, as people are saying with the police officers, blue lives matter, you're absolutely right. What is the common denominator here? People are going to look at you and say, what? We matter. That's what is the common denominator. We matter. Because we're, we're arguing semantics at this point. Mm-hmm. We're arguing semantics. And it's driving me crazy that people are, people who can barely add four plus four are still debating you statistics about, you know, what group dies at a higher rate at the hands of police officers, you know, White conservatives will say, well, more white people die at the hands of police officers than, than black people. So Black Lives Matter, why are you so upset about what's happening? And then you have black people over here saying, well, more African-Americans die at the hands of police officers than uh, white people. I have statistics to prove it. 
why don't we take a step back and say, and ask the question, why are so many people dying at the hands of police officers? Sincerely, whether it's white, black, whatever, let's take a look at the systemic issue as opposed to continuing to waste our time on the grass level issues. That's right, because even one life lost is one life too many. We all die, but this kind of violence is just appalling. It's abhorrent. Uh, It's heartbreaking. Yes. Uh, You know, my daughter was listening in on one of the uh, interviews I was giving this leave after Mr. Castillo was killed. And my daughter, Jada, is very calm, very mature, uh, very even. After I got the call, she just looked at me and asked, Daddy, are you going to die? It's like, what do you mean? I'm in great shape, Jada. We're going to be okay. She's like, no, I'm scared about you dying by a police officer. And I just held her. And I let her cry it out. And I just said, Jada, I have to believe that if we are pulled over 10 times, I have to believe that all 10 of those interactions are going to be positive. We're going to be okay because there are good police officers out there. There really are. But again, I think until systemic changes happens within how people are screened, how people are trained, both on the police side, but let's be real, we have some severe mental health issues going on in the communities, right? And until we start to have a a higher dialogue about what are we going to do about the people who are truly bad actors within our respective communities, we're going to continue to have this issue. And so, Jason, are you doing work within that justice community? Are you working with police forces anywhere in the country? Wonderful question. We have reached out to a number of um, police forces, as you put it, uh, and have not heard anything back at this point. My hope is that uh, we will be able to get in and do the type of work for you know the police that we've been able to do for corporate America. Because I really think that when we talk about issues of diversity, issues of diversity strike, especially with police officers. Now, if, if you consider this, few people, and I'm going to speak to people who go to church right now, this demographic, I don't know very many people who can honestly raise their hands and say, I go to a multi-ethnic church. There are even fewer people, and again, I don't know much about Seattle, so this might not even apply to Seattle, but I'm going to talk to you about the, the states that I've been in the cities that I've been in, there are few people who can legitimately say, I live in a multi-ethnic community. There are few people who can say, I have a range of friends from different ethnicities, gender, sexual orientations, whatever the case might be. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because we generally live in silos. We live in communities with people who look like us, talk like us, think like us, therefore they're us. But if you happen to be a police officer and you live in a community that is just made up of people just like you, but then you put on that badge, you put on that gun, and then you go out onto the streets, and you're dealing with people who look nothing like you whatsoever. If your only experience with people who don't look like you is on the job, i.e. they're criminals, don't be surprised if your reaction to those people, and when I say those people, I'm saying those people who are not like you, who are part of your outgroup, Don't be surprised if your reaction to them is that everything they do is of a criminal nature. That's part of the challenge I think that we have in this country is that for as connected as we are to technology, 
we're so disconnected in terms of our greater society, in terms of reaching out and touching and having a dialogue with people. And that is what is so critical here. Thank you for painting that picture. I think it takes that kind of literal statement to make us realize that, yes, there is that kind of an issue that goes on. You can sit in a classroom and discuss this, but the reality of then walking into a neighborhood that is different than what you're accustomed to, we have to realize that that's there. And so there's more training. That's not going to change overnight with just a class, is it? Right. No, it's impossible. It's impossible. It's one of those things that... One of the things that I implore people to do after they sat through one of my diversity trainings is create your own training. Don't just take, you know, the positive vibe that we've created in this, in this classroom environment. Don't just take this and then go back to your desk and wall it off like, wow, that was a great experience, but I don't have to change my life. Go out, experience life, experience people, experience what people have to say. You know, it's fascinating. I had my daughter and my son, uh, my 10-year-old daughter, my 6-year-old son um, in downtown St. Louis probably three weeks ago and the gay pride parade was down. I think they call it pride fest and it was in downtown St. Louis. So my kids, you know, we're walking, we're hanging out and I had no idea that the parade was downtown and we're seeing all these different people, you know, two men holding hands, two women holding hands. And I looked over my kids and they were completely oblivious to it. They just saw couples. Mm-hmm. And we talked about it afterward and I said, you know, what was your experience like? And they're like, well, if people want to love people, they just want to love them. I don't have a problem with that. Like, can we go get some hamburgers? <laughs> like, out of the mouth of babes. I yes. love my kids because they just saw people. And the more you expose your kids, the more you expose yourself to different people, the more you're training your brain to say, well, we're really not that different. We're still human beings. And they have the advantage, your children, of having a father who is certainly with heightened awareness, and you are creating an atmosphere where you're not polarizing them. I guess that's part of the problem is, again, we as parents, as educators, just as neighbors, need to really begin to monitor what we say in our attitudes. And again, I think just becoming aware of it we need to start doing it. We can change ourselves, just start practicing, put ourselves in those situations, as you said. Yes, yes, just be present. You know, it's interesting listening to people who served in the military because some of the more open-minded people that I've met have been people who lived in military bases because they lived around people who were completely different than them, but they were united under one cause. We're serving the military. They have black friends, white friends, Asian friends, Hispanic friends, so on down the line, and it's just no big deal to them. You know, if our brain is consistently telling us that we should be fearful of people who don't look like us, right, then that simply means that you have not gone out of your way to have the experience of people who don't look like you. Because the more you push yourself into that experience, the more you have, the more you see, the more you touch, taste, whatever the case might be, now you're telling your brain a different story. You're telling your brain this my outgroup is no longer my outgroup. My in-group are people who are made up of a variety of colors, and they're my friends. They're my associates. They're my church members. They're my whatever. So what we are seeing 
in part when we see some of the marches that have occurred in recent days as a result of these tragic killings. We do see, at least in the Seattle area, we see a mixture. And I think even in Dallas, we saw all different colors out in the street. People yeah. were coming together. And so we do have a segment of society, I think, obviously, we have to have some segment that is integrating or feeling accepting and really yeah. just seeing beyond skin, really seeing people. So what we need to do is somehow grow this. Isn't that it or part of it? I, I completely agree with you. I mean, even when you look at uh, pictures of the civil rights movements and you would see Dr. Martin Luther King uh, marching with, you know, hundreds if not thousands of protesters, you would see white people in those protests holding hands with black people. And I think what amazes me is I was looking at something on CNN. They're showing all the people who showed up at a particular protest and they were people from all walks of life. They were young, old, gay, straight black, white, you know, go on down the line of people who are just joining together because we're realizing at a bigger level, this is a human rights thing, right? And I'm going to challenge something here because I put out a video where I was just basically imploring people to do better and to at least have a conversation with me about how we can improve race relations. Wonderful, wonderful dialogues were established as a result. But one thing that continues to come up is this notion that all lives matter. And it's usually something that's put out there, and I'm not trying to stereotype, but I'm just, or overgeneralize, but I'm going to tell you what I've seen. Whenever, for a segment of the white population, when they hear Black Lives Matter, they instantly want to retort with All Lives Matter. And while I agree with both, let me give you an explanation of what this means. When you come back and say All Lives Matter, why are you making this into a black thing? In many cases, that's a patronizing statement. Because people who are talking about Black Lives Matter are people who are specifically speaking about things that have happened to black people at the hands of police officers, to things that have happened even to black people as a result of actions committed by other black people. When you respond with, well, all lives matter, but you're sitting on your couch while you type that out on Facebook, or you're having these dialogues around the water cooler, and you're saying all lives matter, why are they making such a big deal out of this? If you are not actively out there being part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. But when you hear people say, all lives matter, why are you making such a big deal about it? But you're doing absolutely nothing. Your actions are not showing that you really believe that all lives matter. That's when people start to take offense. Mm -hmm. It feels discounting. Yes, very much so. Very much so. It's. I think that in this country, we have the... I don't know where we get this from. We have this attitude of we blame the victim for being victimized, but we don't look at the victimizer as though he or she did anything wrong. Right? Yes. that's. Yes. And I think that's dangerous. That's dangerous, reckless thinking. Yes. How... That's a, a question. How did we get to it? The greater issues that we have, and that has to change. Yes. That we need to come together realizing that we are, we have this little planet to live on, and it does feel like it's really teetering. It's in a yeah. shaky position. I completely agree with you. I think we're at an inflection point. We're at a tipping point where history is going to judge us based on our next series of actions, right? And my hope is that we have continued dialogues like you and I are having uh, where we 
and appeal to our better angels and make a decision or make a series of decisions that's in the best interest of the overall community. So that being the case, is that what we need to do is to come together in different places? Maybe it's in coffee shops, small groups of people. Maybe we come together in a town hall kind of thing, all sorts of things like that, but come together as as the community of all parts of who we are, not just a particular segment. Like you were saying in churches, are we in a multiracial church or are we just, you know, someone who looks like ourselves? I, I think you're right on. You know, I'm not a big fan of protests. And I don't know if that's because I'm getting older or what, but I don't think protests really, you know, again, you're putting yourself in a silo because you're showing up with a group of like-minded people and you're walking down the street screaming things that you all can agree on, but you're doing absolutely nothing to change the mindsets of people who live in the other silo because you can't scream at them because they're going to shut down. You can't tell them that they're wrong because they're going to tell you that they're right. right? Yeah. You're literally meeting force with force, accomplishing absolutely nothing from my perspective. But I think getting to what you've brought up, having these dialogues in coffee houses, having these dialogues in churches, have these dialogues at your dinner table, right? Yes. And not just creating these dialogues when something catastrophic happens, but having a series of dialogues that continues on even during times of peace. That's the goal. You know, we're this 32nd generation where, you know, we want our news in 30 seconds. We want our entertainment in 30 seconds. We want our sports in 30 seconds. Well, peace is not a 30-second process. Peace is a lifelong process, and it's something that you have to continue. It's just like working out. If you want to build muscle, you have to consistently build that muscle. Once you build that muscle, you have to feed that muscle. Same thing with peace. You have to build it, you have to sustain it, you have to feed it, and you have to grow it. That's an ongoing dialogue. And that's it. Start at the dinner table. Of course, that is something that maybe not a lot of people do, but we need to create it. And thinking, you know, summertime and people have these block parties that's a time to come together and have it within whatever your community is. And if it's more of all of us who look the same, then use that to then reach out to create something across town, find a a connection, someone, maybe a coworker. That way, I think, is a way that we might create a type of coming together as different communities. And it may feel awkward when change happens. It isn't always just, oh, well, this feels so good and natural. It may feel awkward, right? Yes, agreed. Agreed. I love the way you think. It is going to be awkward in the beginning, but that's just because you're getting used to it. It's just like the analogy that I use to describe the path to peace is the first date. (laughs) You go out on your first date, nerves. You know, maybe I'm giving away how I feel about a first date. Your palms are sweaty. You're like, okay, is she going to like me? Is she going to dig me? Okay, are we going to do the right things? Am I going to say the right thing? You're going through this protocol in your mind. And then the second date comes along. You're not as nervous, feeling kind of good about it. She seems to like me. Third date comes around. I really love her. Fourth date comes around. I think this might be the one. And then 30 years later, you're married, you're loving each other, you've bonded with each other. And not to say that the road was incredibly easy, because as couples go along, they have ups and downs. Yeah. And look what you've built. Look at the kids that you've had. Look at the life that you have. Look at the house that you have. Look at the impact you made in your community. It's no different than the path to peace. It's going to be uncomfortable in the beginning, but the outcome is going to be so worth it. That is a beautiful 
analogy, and it's really appropriate. I think we can really picture how that can be with this new kind of reality and beingness that we want, we need to create, or the other side of it is not very pretty. Yes, I completely agree. So there's something so tangible that we can do. Start small. And really, it's each of us, isn't it, Jason? It's not waiting for, well, someone's going to take care of this. It's not. It's each and every single one of us on this planet in this country right now. Yes, we all have a responsibility. You're living your responsibility by creating a forum by which you can bring on different people such as myself to have a variety of conversations that are going to appeal to a variety of people. You're doing your responsibility. I feel like I'm living my responsibility by being out here speaking about race relations. That's what I do. But the man who is bagging groceries but gives a smile every single time he bags groceries to a customer who maybe a half an hour ago was thinking, I want to commit suicide, yet this man is sitting here smiling at me, and he's smiling at me because he sees me. That man is living his destiny. He's doing his duty, and he might not even be aware of it. At some point or another, we have to realize that we're more than just these categories, that we're part of this beautiful tapestry of life. And if we're made in the image of a creator, if we're made in the image of the universe, if we're just made, and I'm going across you know, whatever people believe about what comes next is up to them. But nevertheless, we cannot deny the fact that we're all here at the same time doing something very similar, and there has to be a reason for it. But we have a responsibility to learn how to get along. Indeed. And I love your analogy again of the tapestry, that we are all part of it. Every single thread is important there. Every single one of us has value, is important. We just need to take away, would you say it's the fear? Take away all the anxiety and fear bit by bit so that we can come to see that. Yes, ma'am. Yes. I think it's first acknowledging that there is fear, Ah. right? Yes. And being okay with it. Listen, I had a man come up to me and say, I'm embarrassed to admit that when a black man walks past me, I'm scared to death. You know, I hugged him. At least you admit it. Because now I can admit there are times where a white man walks past me and I get scared to death. Especially if he has a gun and he's doing, you know, I get scared because I don't know if he's thinking about capping. I don't know if I'm going to die. But I have to admit it. But by admitting it, you recognize that there might be something there. So if you really want to challenge yourself, even if you don't strike up a conversation with that gentleman who happens to walk past you, why don't you just step into a community center, a community center that might be full of black kids and black counselors, and go up and strike up a conversation. They might think you're a little weird. You might think they're a little weird. But keep showing up and keep going back. And then a month later, when you happen to be walking past an African-American gentleman, See if that level of fear is still there, or if it's been replaced by, hey, good morning, sir. How are you? Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Challenge yourself. Yes. And there are vast amounts of these opportunities in our own community. We just have to think about doing something like this, and it'll be amazing what will come across our path just so easily. Don't you think, Jason? Absolutely. No, I completely agree with you. So I think that we have at least come up with a few simple things. 
And it starts, I think, with the simple. We don't have to think of some grandstand effort. Okay, we're going to legislate peace. It doesn't happen that way, right? Right. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't. And I think to continue to look to our politicians to provide the answers for us, it's limiting because they're still trying to figure out the answers to whatever it is that politicians deal with. We have to take responsibility for ourselves. And just as you stated before, I'm looking for outside leaders and become the leader within ourselves. That is what we need to do. Yes. Absolutely. Take that initiative and have the conversations. Some very simple steps, just as we go out on that first date, taking it step by step and keep moving forward, knowing, again, that word awkwardness will certainly come into play, but look at what we can create. Yes. Look at what we can create. I completely agree with you. Well, this has been much too short, but I think in the limited time we've had, I trust that we've covered some very critical areas and shown how each of us is part of this solution. If we are to continue to live and thrive on this planet in our communities, it really is up to each of us. Yes, ma'am. Completely agree. Jason Greer, I just so appreciate your taking your time with us this morning and doing the incredible work that you do. It's been such a real gift to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time and thank you for your questions. They were awesome.